Hello and welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio. I'm Patricia Schwartz. This episode is part of a series exploring ancestral geographies of what we refer to as the Southwest. For me, it was an opportunity to relearn critical aspects of the recent and ongoing history of this region where I was born, and hear from inspiring folks exploring decolonial futures through the telling of indigenous stories. Recording from a land-grant university occupying indigenous homelands, we want to honor and to thank the Tahana Atam, Pasquayaki, and 20 other Native communities in the state of Arizona for their continual stewardship of this region. As we search for ways to go beyond acknowledgement and towards action, we hope you'll consider supporting any of the numerous Indigenous-led organizations and movements doing incredible work locally. The show notes has information about a few of them and the sources that made this episode possible. Thanks for listening. Indian School Road cuts east to west through Arizona's metropolitan capital city, Phoenix. Growing up here and driving on this road a lot, I never really noticed the colonial-style brick buildings in what is now a city park at its center. Three out of the 29 original edifices making up the boarding school that gives the thoroughfare its name. A place that generations of uprooted Native American kids called home during its 99-year operation. I was born only two years after the Federal Bureau closed the doors of the Phoenix Indian School in 1990, but I had the distinct settler privilege of not knowing the history of the road's name throughout most of my childhood. Hi, are you Patricia? Hello, I am. I'm <laughs> Rosalie. Come on in. Thanks. Rosalie Telehongva and her sister Patty attended Phoenix Indian School, PI as they call it, in the 1970s. They both now work out of the community center recently renovated from one of its old buildings, a multifunctional space where tribal leaders can meet in the city. So usually what we, what we start with is um, this photograph here, and it is a, a class from 1951. So the doors that you just walked through are the doors that they're standing in front of. Rosalie is the curator of its small memorial room, Chronicling Life at P.I., during our tour, she tells me that ignorance of the school's history is not uncommon. Patty, who produces the weekday newscast for Indian Country Today out of the center, says it's part of the basic knowledge missing from much of our narratives, what she calls Indian 101. Throughout her career as a journalist, and most often the only indigenous one in the newsroom, she's had to give this crash course numerous times. A 2015 study examining the content requirements for U.S. history classes taught in K-12 schools nationwide maybe helps explain why. The standards cover almost nothing about the thousands of years of the continent's history before European arrival, nor events following it that aren't directly related to interaction with colonizers. Most of what we are taught blurs together three centuries of distinct resistance struggles against European and later American invasion leading up to the boarding school era, lumping all of it together under the American-Indian Wars. Almost 90% of all required topics concerning Native American history are from this time, before 1900. 17 states have no content standards for events following 1900 at all. But the height of the policy removing Native children from their families 
stripping them of their identities and forcing them into brutal military-style institutions, came decades later. It would be 1978 before parents had the legal right to refuse to have their children taken away, with the passing of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Just about everything that happened after the signing of treaties and parceling of reservation lands, including our repeated breach of those treaties, seems to be missing from basic history curriculum. The first time I think I understood Indian School Road's name was on a field trip to the Heard Museum, another downtown Phoenix fixture with its own near-century history, about a mile from the school. It hosts a permanent exhibit focused on the off-reservation boarding school system. Following the wars, the country entered into a new phase of policymaking around what was both colloquially and formally called the Indian problem. It devised a far-reaching strategy of forced assimilation and cultural genocide. The Federal Board of Indian Commissioners had done the math and decided, as Commissioner Morgan stated at the establishment of Phoenix's boarding school, quote, it's cheaper to educate the Indians than to kill them. They reckoned a cost of about $1,200 for eight years of education versus nearly $1 million per individual they could kill in warfare. Thus, a network of over 300 schools sprung up across the country. Those that weren't federally run, like PI, were managed by various denominations of Christian churches with government funding. Generations of children were taken by force some in handcuffs or pulled out from where their parents had tried to hide them during the government raids. Upon arrival, students had their hair cut into whiter-looking styles. On the same day, they were stripped of their belongings and arbitrarily assigned new names, ones their instructors can more easily remember and pronounce. In the northern tribes, a lot of times, they're only cutting their hair when someone dies. And so you grow up with that, right? You know that. And you come here and everyone's here has been cutting your hair stuff. And, and, you know, the very first thing is, who died? And you never have that answered. And no one around you has that answered. But yet you still, you know, continue. Many students did die. Disease outbreaks were so common that most schools had their own cemeteries. Children had to abandon their languages and could be beaten for trying to communicate or for most any other reason in some schools, all in the name of becoming so-called civilized. But they spent most of their time learning only the basic skills needed to become useful laborers for America's growing industry. These schools were built on the same strategies incubated in federal prisons by General Richard H. Pratt, part of his proclaimed effort to save the man by killing the Indian within him. New schools were pitched as a boost to local economies. They would provide jobs for white people as teachers and staff, and most importantly, cheaper labor in the form of students in the outing programs. Patty Tellahongva elaborated on her own experiences in an interview at the Heard Museum exhibit. You have uh, this outing program where anyone can drive up the school and check out the student and realize that Nobody is asking for a driver's license ID or saying you have to be fingerprinted or anything like that. And they're certainly not calling your family and saying, oh, by the way, you know, this stranger, this woman is coming to pick up your daughter, Patty, and hopefully she'll return her at the end of the day. You know, who checks out human beings? But that's what happened through the whole course of the Indian school 
um, history. So you have uh, students going off with strangers. And again, I, I wouldn't want to be a boy because the artwork in Phoenix is hot and dirty. But these guys go out there and clean yards and do whatever else they needed to do and get paid. And you negotiated your own pay. There was no minimum wage. There was no, you must have, you know, a minimum, so many hours, so much money or whatever. And so it would, and, and what high school kid can really, and especially in those times, can really have the guts to negotiate a high pay, right? For kids of all ages, life at school was comparable to military training. One of the system's secondary goals, as visioned by Pratt and the federal commissioners, was to turn out good American citizens. I guess ignoring the fact that even their alumni weren't granted naturalized citizenship until decades into the boarding school assimilation project, and in many states could be denied voting rights until 1965. At the encouragement of these institutions, many pupils fought died, and were then recognized by the U.S. military forces. P.I.'s monument to its student soldiers stands in front of a building those very students helped to erect. According to Rosalie, schools became more receptive to students speaking their own languages after Choctaw and Navajo code talkers helped the U.S. win both world wars. Daily marching drills had also fallen out of favor by the time the Telehongvas attended P.I., but Rosalie recounts the demerits, the manual labor, the mess hall, and the footlocker that held her belongings. She also remembers how far behind her eighth grade lessons were from what she'd learned at previous schools. With education coming second to assimilation in their original design, reports consistently showed that schools run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs did students a grave disservice in subjects like math, reading, and writing. The almost 200 schools operated by the BIA today still do, but remain the only option for some rural areas of reservations. When Rosalie and Patty get asked by visitors if their enrollment in the last years of PI was voluntary, they explain that they came because of the same lack of options near their hometown on Hopi, and because of federal requirements. I guess, Rosalie says, it depends what you mean by voluntary. Like the other alumni who came to PI's recent reunion at the center, they celebrate the relationships they built there. They're proud of their accomplishments, and now too of their part in the long overdue reclamation of this space and its stories. The generous role they've now taken on is that of educators, for the rest of Phoenix to continue reckoning with the past reflected in its familiar buildings and street names. After our meeting, I made the short trip south of Indian School Road to the Heard Museum. The boarding school exhibit was updated from what I remembered from grade school. On one of the new video screens, I heard the voice of Dr. Matthew Sakaiastewa Gilbert, who now works at the University of Arizona, and was kind enough to sit down with me to talk about his work as a Hopi historian. So um, my name is Matthew Sakaiastewa Gilbert. And uh, I'm currently serving as professor and head of the Department of American Indian Studies at the University of Arizona. And prior to coming to the University of Arizona in 2019, I had served 13 years uh, in the American Indian Studies Department and the Department of History at the University of, of Illinois. 
originally from Arizona. Um, I grew up in Flagstaff. I'm an enrolled member of the Hopi tribe in the village of Upper Monocopi. So uh, when I came out back in 2019, it was uh, it was a bit of a homecoming, coming back to the to the Southwest, something that I had wanted to do for a long time. We met at the U of A's American Indian Studies offices. Before sitting down for as intimate of a conversation as COVID would allow, masked across six feet of conference table, he showed me around his working space. The art in my room or in my office is, uh, is, a, is a combination of both Hopi and also Navajo pieces, uh, Southwest Indian pieces. Among a multitude of books, there are brightly colored Hopi bows in children's sizes for teaching archery. There's a well-known photograph captured by a friend and photographer, Owen Siemtiwa, of Owen's son dressed in the attire of a traditional Hopi clown. Clowns are often seen at community ceremonies and dances, performing a mischievous but edifying type of comedy that Dr. Sakaiestiwa Gilbert explains reminds us that we are all clowns, fumbling through a mortal life and pretending like we know what we're doing. A lot of the pieces he's acquired, like this photo, used to hang in museums. And then the other picture that we have here, a picture of the village of Wallopi out on uh, First Mesa. Hopi country sits in what you might now think of as northeastern Arizona. It's a unique red desert landscape characterized by massive flat-topped mesas. Depicted in the painting on the wall, one of Hopi's historic villages has stood erect for centuries, a contrast to the boundless vistas of the valley lying 300 feet below it. Dr. Sakaiestiwa Gilbert's family is from Third Mesa, about 30 miles away from Wallopi, and home to one of the oldest continuously inhabited human settlements on the continent. Though despite roots in the Southwest, this wasn't always his region of focus. I had originally been accepted to go to grad school at the University of California, Riverside, to study early modern European history. And as part of the process of uh, starting grad courses at UCR, I met with the then graduate advisor of the department, Cliff Trafser, who's uh, Wyandotte and German ancestry. And after about an hour of having a conversation with him, even prior to my first class had ever started, he looked at me and says, you know, you're, you're Hopi. I said, yes. And he says, you know, have you ever thought about studying the Hopi boarding school experience at Sherman Institute? And that was not my plan at all. I, I was not even really thinking about that. And uh, when he said Sherman Institute, I, I knew I, I was familiar with that school because my grandfather, Victor Sakaiestiwa from the village of Araibi on the Hopi reservation had attended that school. And so I was immediately interested to see what, what he had to say about it. And uh, it turned out that I left the field of early modern European history. I, <laughs> I then uh, had a, a, a emphasis uh, in my graduate program in Native American history and, and ultimately received a PhD in, in U.S. history with an emphasis in Native history. Maybe Dr. Sakaiestiwa Gilbert's path was a bit winding, but his work is now as vital as ever. Historically, much academic literature on Native peoples has been written by white anthropologists, often with paltry or reductionist understandings of context and culture. Still, there is a scarcity of academic and broadly published work 
on the rich history of the Hopi. At that time, and this was 2005, 2006, there was only one other Hopi historian that is uh, uh, a member of the Hopi tribe who was doing Hopi history. And that was Lomayuntiwa Ishii, uh, Dr. Ishii at, at Northern Arizona University. And so, you know, the bulk of, of Hopi studies, um, just in general, but certainly in the early 2000s, was, was being conducted by uh, anthropologists, and sociologists, and, and there were still a number of people, even Hopi scholars in the field of, of education. But as far as, as, as a historian, um, you know, I, I, at that time I was, uh, I was one of two. And I think I still am only, you know, all these years later. One of Dr. Sakaistiwa Gilbert's books, Beyond the Mesas, explores the experiences of the first generations of students at the Sherman Institute a residential boarding school in Riverside, California. It pulls together stories of student survivors from archives and interviews to encapsulate almost 30 years of Hopi life at the boarding school at the turn of the 20th century. By the way, you can find citations for this work and others mentioned in the show notes. As a Hopi historian, I've, through my writings, my research, my publications, I've tried to make a contribution to add a Hopi voice uh, to the field of Hopi studies. And I always have to remind people, it's one of many Hopi voices, right? The book begins with an acknowledgement. The Hopi tribe possesses no greater historical source than its people. Dr. Sakaistiwa Gilbert's method of doing history is rooted in the collection of personal stories and representation of voices spanning the spectrum of indigenous experience. This and all of his work is conducted with the involvement, cooperation, and written consent of the Hopi tribe, following procedures created in response to academia's past theft of knowledge and misuse of data. Preserving this history ensures that the causes of our current issues aren't erased and glossed over. But this book was written for boarding school survivors and their communities. In it, he describes some of the most impactful outcomes of his research, sharing copies of the records he found with the living families of Sherman students. It centers the contributions of students to these spaces, their relationships, and creative adaptation to an incomprehensible situation. One of the things that I've attempted to do in my, in my work, in my publications, is to look at the Hopi boarding school experience. Uh, within a, a, a Hopi frame, a Hopi cultural context. And because these kids, these are youth, um, some of them were young adults who went to these off-reservation boarding schools. So, I mean, they were, they were coming from these, these tribal communities that already had a system of, of education in, in place. And so for one example, the a Hopi way of, of understanding the land right, uh, their ancestral lands, is that they are caretakers of that land. Um, whereas when they went to off-reservation boarding schools, uh, I mean, teachers taught these uh, Hopi students that that land was was there to be used and worked and you could earn money and, and, and have a, a sense of ownership and, and uh, independence uh, from working that land. What boarding schools failed to recognize is that their student bodies already possessed a huge diversity of knowledge, including of the practices they claimed to impart, like agriculture. 
practices which even today are continually being rediscovered by American society as solutions to environmental problems of our era, like water shortages and wildfires. Anecdotes in the Beyond the Mesa's Parallel documentary make clear the benefit of student labor for surrounding communities. The results of the work programs for students, even for those who were not abused by their employers, were dubious upon returning to a society that devalued their lives and contributions. Some of what was learned in boarding school training and outing programs was a practical supplement to knowledge students already had. Rupert Costo, author and founder of the American Indian Historical Society, said of the program in the wider context of cultural genocide, quote, In some ways, the outing program was useful. If by assimilation we mean the adoption of certain technologies and techniques, that had already been underway for some hundred years. After all, the Indians were not and are not fools. We are always ready to improve our condition. But assimilation, meaning fading into the general society with a complete loss of our identity and culture, was another thing entirely. And we had fought against this from the first coming of the white man. Unquote. Writ large, the nation has made little effort to remember its own history, or reckon with what the assimilation effort destroyed. But experiences of boarding schools are living, multi-generational history for many Native folks. So one of the things I think is important for people to, to understand or to realize is that the boarding school history or the boarding school experience is a, is a legacy. And I think it's a complicated legacy. And it's not all positive. It's, it's also not all bad. And part of that legacy of the, of the off-reservation Indian boarding school experience is that students then become the teachers and those teachers then teach other students. Dr. Sakai Stewa Gilbert often uses his early advisor Cliff Trafser's phrase, turning the power, to describe what indigenous kids stripped of safety family, and autonomy were able to cultivate under forced assimilation. His work chronicles everyday resistance and imagination in the violent spaces of boarding schools, and eventually how these spaces were taken back. In later years, alumni began to take up positions as instructors. Uh, Sherman Institute is now Sherman Indian High School, and so uh, there's still some Hopi kids that uh, go to boarding school in Riverside. Uh, it looks it, it looks different than than what it initially or the, the purpose of that school in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But uh, there are still some students that that go. That legacy continues. A school like Sherman Institute uh, emphasizes uh, these themes that are often emphasized in the field of American Indian studies, like Indian self-determination. Um, when I went to uh, UC Riverside, I spent a lot of time at Sherman Indian High School, the museum there, the Sherman Indian Museum. So I got to uh, become familiar with at least some of the students who worked as interns in the museum. You know, having conversations with the students and, and uh, looking at some of the curriculum that they do, Indian self-determination certainly is uh, an emphasis within that program. You have other schools like Haskell Institute uh, in uh, Kansas. Uh, that eventually became Haskell Indian Nations uh, University. And, it, and not following those uh, acculturation kinds of practices that took place in the early 1900s of forbidding Native um, language and, and trying to 
uh, teach the Indian out of these these students, uh, but and oftentimes the reverse is is taking place at these schools now, which is a, a good thing. The Bureau of Indian Affairs' ongoing financial mismanagement and ineffective leadership led to the gradual closure of most residential facilities like the Phoenix Indian School. Most kids now go to public schools, out of federal control, where boarding school alumni can teach closer to home. Today, Hopi teachers make up over half of the teachers at Hopi Public Schools, and the broad movement to establish tribal colleges has resulted in many accredited campuses. However, Native American public school teachers continue to have the lowest average salary of any demographic group. Uh, on, on one hand, depending on what is being taught and the form of education, I think one can argue that it is a, it's a form of colonialism at work, right? And um, just how, how much of an influential impact that colonialism has had on Indian education today I think is a is a really great discussion for for people to have because we've all been affected by colonialism and students today at, at our day schools or our high school um, back out at Hopi are certainly affected by that as well but what I am seeing uh, certainly out at Hopi is that you know they've got teachers who are who are attempting to uh, bringing this historical knowledge back to those schools. Um, and there was a teacher out at Hopi High School, I think it was an English teacher, that I had read about in the, in the uh, I think it was the Navajo Hopi Observer. Uh, this was probably like five years ago. And I sent her all my books, I, even a copy of uh, Beyond the Mesas, the DVD, just so that she could use that in, uh, in the schools back, back at, at Hopi. The examples that, that, a number of these Hopi youth have are teachers, right? And so they're, they're teachers in elementary school, junior high, high school. And so, you know, the, the vast majority of Hopi individuals who, who go on and go to graduate school, I'm, I, I have seen over the years that a number of them go into the field of education. Dr. Sakai Stiwa Gilbert has written about his father, Willard Sakai Stiwa Gilbert, who is a professor too, of education. He says he grew up wanting to be like him, and once he was able to shadow his lectures, learn from the ways he drew on his own experiences and authority to engage students in thinking about the fruitful integration of Western science with Navajo and Hopi knowledge, and in becoming better educators themselves. When I hear indigenizing education, the first thing I think that comes to my mind is, is a return to, to the ways of our our ancestors right the ways of our grandparents great-grandparents and, and our elders in our in our community it's not so much changing how we understand history although i think that's part of it but really looking back and, and looking at the ways that our our people uh, understood themselves right uh, as hopi people what can we learn from them from their experiences? You know, as a historian, especially early on when I was in grad school, thinking about this idea of indigenizing history, you know, what does that mean? And, and I thought to myself, am I, am I supposed to look at this from like, uh, just get, a, get, get rid of dates and years in my work and just look at it from like this 
native cyclical understanding. And I, I wasn't quite sure how I was supposed to approach that, but um, I think the way in which I've attempted to indigenize my own work, or uh, if you want to use that term, is is to look at history, Hopi history, through a, a Hopi frame of understanding. And so, for example, when I looked at the Hopi boarding school experience at Sherman Institute, you know, oftentimes when scholars had written about that topic or the boarding school experience in general, they would look at it as a story of of colonization and it was a story of that centered on issues of federal Indian policy. Whereas when I looked at it, I thought, you know, this is this is really a story of migration. It's another migration in our people's past. The first wave of migration when our people went in all four cardinal directions, various different clans, um, we see another form of migration in the early 1900s when the when these youth once again left their ancestral lands for, for different regions, literally in four cardinal directions, um, and then coming back to their society. So I think looking at the boarding school experience through the lens of Hopi migration, I mean, that's that's helpful for me. But then again, I come back to, it's just one of many, many uh, accounts. Most Native Americans, over 70%, don't live on reservations, but in cities. One reason for the next phase of urban migration was another of the federal government's anti-Indigenous policy schemes. When the boarding school brand of assimilation stopped being funded, a new version arose. Termination. In the 1950s, the federal government tried to dismantle the reservation system and spurred relocation to cities on a massive scale. 113 tribes were terminated, having their rights, recognition, and reservation land taken during this time. 78 of them have since been reinstated. But after centuries of genocide and displacement, tribal territories have been completely annexed in almost a third of the states in the Union. Now only 35 acknowledge even a portion as Native land. I mean, in Illinois there were no federally recognized tribes, no Indian reservations in the state of Illinois. So most of those tribes, uh, those communities had been removed to places such as Oklahoma, Oklahoma Indian Territory, and other states. And But when you come to the Southwest, the, the landscape looks different uh, in more ways than one, right? And, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a, a vibrant and wonderful place to be. You see that this is Indian land everywhere you go. And um, being in Illinois, was, it was different. Sometimes you would cross a river that had an Indian-type name to it, like Kaskaskia, uh, or go through the town of Peoria, and those would be reminders. Whereas you get to the Southwest, uh, I think you're reminded about it all the time. And that's one of the thrills about being a professor here, uh, teaching these undergraduate students and graduate students, is that you know we're in positions where we can we can inform students, and students may not have thought about it, uh, but we can, we can teach students that this is Indian land, and here are some examples. 22 tribes, including the Hopi, are recognized within what is now called Arizona. 
the University of Arizona, where Dr. Sakaistua Gilbert and I are speaking, sits on the ancestral territories of the Tohono O'odham and Yaqui peoples. And I think, you know, one of the things that you quickly realize when you come down to this region and when you start talking about land acknowledgements is whose land are we on? You know, as a, as a Hopi individual who's, who's uh, in the state of Arizona, I always look at this as this land as, as Otham and Pasquayaki land. They each have their origin stories, their migration stories. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, an outsider like me uh, should be in the position of, of determining whose land this is. Pasquayaki Yaki says this is their land. Otham says this is their land. It is their land. The work of indigenous activists has made it harder for politicians to ignore a pressing conversation about material repatriation. Recently and publicly through the robust and growing land back movement. Last year, a team of researchers and journalists working with High Country News created the first public database mapping seized indigenous lands that were given to U.S. universities in the Marill Act of 1862. Signed by Abraham Lincoln, the act essentially established the university system as we know it, by raising seed money for 52 schools in the form of stolen land transactions, almost 11 million acres of them. Though not always obvious, even students at universities far from modern reservations may have benefited from indigenous displacement. Eastern institutions like Penn State and Cornell received vouchers for land hundreds or sometimes thousands of miles away. In many cases, after selling the land for seed money, universities continued to earn interest on it. In the case of the University of Arizona, not all of its land-grant spoils came from the Autumn and Yaqui peoples. Much of it was taken from Apache, Maricopa, and others. Before the database, land-grant ties had been pretty obfuscated. But actually, the U of A is part of the smaller group of beneficiaries whose land came from within its state lines. When you look at the University of Arizona, I think because it's a land-grant institution, it has a responsibility to the people of Arizona, uh, but it also is, has an accountability to those tribal nations and those that call that, that region or that, that land their ancestral lands. I think the University of Arizona has an obligation to work with and create opportunities for both the Tonawath and the Pasquayaki people. I really believe that. And I think that hiring uh, Otham and Pasquayaki faculty and staff and making opportunities for students should be a priority here at the University of Arizona. Those who worked on the land grab research project contend that of all of the U.S. government's policies tearing land from Native hands since the 1800s, the Marill Act might be a practical place to start a process of reconciliation. The doctrine spelled out land-grant universities' mission to extend practical education to communities around them and advance scientific study with local concerns in mind. Settlers who received land through the Homestead Act may have later abandoned it or died. And the corporate progeny of the railroad companies that received land grants for development, like Union Pacific, are still beholden to shareholders and in no way held accountable for such growth. As institutions advocating knowledge and presumably committed to societal good, 
universities have an opportunity to reallocate these endowment monies to support Indigenous students and promote reformed curriculum, or just give the land back. Acknowledging history is a limited but seemingly necessary step. Increasingly, you'll hear land acknowledgement statements at the beginning of university events or presentations, like this podcast. The statement is a brief way to recognize the original stewards of the land you're standing on, bringing a largely obscured and violent history into more frequent collective discourse. Like many institutions, the U of A drafted its official land acknowledgement statement not too long ago. However, it's been criticized for neglecting to explicitly name any local communities, referring only to its place on the original homelands of indigenous peoples in general. Some U of A students told me that they see this as a lack of conviction, an indication of a larger concern. That land acknowledgement statements in universities, without mitigating policies to bring the sentiment into action, are effectively hollow and performative gestures. Uh, I started seeing it more around 2014, maybe 2015, where more and more universities or individuals presenting at conferences were doing these various different land acknowledgements. And, and I think that just this whole uh, push to do land acknowledgements or paremesis to do it, you know, it's, it's complicated in different ways. On one hand, you know, I, I think it's great that that individuals are acknowledging that they are living, working, whatever on, on the ancestral lands of indigenous people. Uh, because I think a lot of people, you know, just go on with their lives and, and they have no idea that they're on native land. Uh, my, my grad advisor, Cliff Trafser, he starts his, one of his books by, by saying that wherever you are in the Americas, you are on Indian land. And that idea, I think, is really foreign to a lot of different people because they don't they don't look at the Americas as as Indian land and that it certainly is. And so as a scholar, I try to be the the very best native scholar and teacher that I can possibly be, wherever that is, whether I'm in Tucson or Illinois or California. Um, and in many ways, you know, I look at that as me honoring the people of that land. I do the very best that I could do. And if I were to write on, you know, say the Navajo people, I want to do the very best that I possibly can on that, on that article or that essay as a way of, of honoring. And so, you know, I think, I think we also need to pay attention, not just to our words of acknowledgement, but how we conduct ourselves. It's great that we have deans and faculty and students uh, doing these various different land acknowledgements. And I'm seeing it a lot on emails, uh, signatures of, of emails. But I also, you know, we should we should also be following up that with, with the question of now what? What does that mean, right? And how do we practice that idea in our own, in our own life? Because I don't think we should just do these acknowledgements and then put a little check um, on the box and be like, okay, we're good. Now we can just continue on. Um, I, I think that that it defeats the purpose in a lot of ways. There's so much work to be done at institutional levels. And still, at the individual level, there's long overdue learning needed. 
One of the consequences of an ongoing lack of indigenous representation in education means that scholars like Dr. Sakai Stewart Gilbert have to spend time warding off misinformation and appropriation in academic circles. You see that uh, a lot, sometimes even without thinking about it, right? Uh, Native imagery, uh, symbols, uh, and various things like that have been used and used completely, completely out of context. you know, I, I sometimes get asked to review books, fictional works especially, from authors who want me to read their chapter on the Hopi. Maybe they're, they're writing a book about aliens or something like that. I mean, some, some really bizarre stuff. Um, and I usually pass on those opportunities. Now and then I'll, I'll, I will, I will uh, uh, agree to read one of their, their pieces. And you know, it's just really striking to me just how how people don't, you know, some, some people don't even think twice about cultural appropriation, using something in a way that it was never intended to be used. Other places seen as bulwarks of culture and knowledge in the U.S. have been slow to reckon with history as well. There's been some movement within museums that have historically made their name exploiting Native art and culture. To return artifacts and appoint indigenous leadership. That was a huge honor to be asked by the Herd Museum to be among the advisors for the revamping of their of their boarding school exhibit. I had seen that exhibit years uh, years ago, probably twenty or so years ago, and so I had some familiarity with it. But it had been in a while. But then to be able to work with you know these various different native scholars, such as Shinina Loma Waima. Um, and Brenda Child and uh, John Rayner and other individuals to, to be able to keep the, the message the same um, on the exhibit, but to revise it, to, to, to modernize it in certain kinds of ways and uh, emphasizing things such as native agency and, again, self-determination and, and perseverance and survival, you know, these kinds of things that that Native people, especially when they're writing about boarding school experiences, often emphasize in their work. Um, so it was great. It was, a, it was a really great experience to be able to do that. And um, I, I think from what my understanding is, it's been very successful. Um, before COVID hit, there was supposed to be a traveling exhibit that was going to go around the nation. Um, and I don't believe that that ever it ever even started, uh, but that was the plan of it to to at least have a portion of that exhibit go around the nation, uh, and hopefully at some point when everything was safe and somewhat back to normal, they'll be able to do that. Projects like the boarding school exhibit in Phoenix are a way for the general public to become re-educated. Dr. Sakai Stewa Gilbert has made his career patiently sharing this knowledge and generously helping settlers like me to understand the history of the land I'm living on. He's written not only on indigenous resilience, but on the ways that Hopi culture has influenced the world. And I've always argued that that being away from Hopi is, is a very Hopi thing. When you look at it with our migration stories, our ancient migration stories, our how our people ventured out in all four cardinal directions and they experienced a new way of life and then ultimately came back uh, to our ancestral lands and formed a foundation of Hopi society. And so, you know, for me to 
to uh, go beyond Hopi and to live in, in states like California, um, Illinois, um, and other places, you know, that was, that was really good for me. Another of his books explores the deep-rooted Hopi tradition of long-distance running and how it came to intersect with American sport, from boarding school teams to the Olympics. A lot of my research can be can be understood through this one phrase, right, of beyond the mesas, uh, beyond the Hopi mesas, because that's, that's my experience as a Hopi individual. Um, I have... I've made my career writing about how Hopi people have navigated beyond their ancestral lands. And whether that's the Hopi boarding school experience at Sherman Institute, or that's running in a marathon in New York City, or in London or Stockholm, Sweden, uh, that's, I, I can speak, I can speak from that, uh, from that positionality as a Hopi individual who has lived his life beyond the Hopi Mesas, and I've never claimed to be an expert of, of life out at Hopi because that's not my reality. Um, but I can, and I do have a perspective of what it's like to be Hopi and live beyond the Mesas. Currently, Dr. Sakai Stiwa Gilbert is working on a book called Modern Encounters of the Hopi Past. It follows the careers and experiences of Hopi individuals in different American contexts including in education. I would love to see, I would, I would love to see another Hopi historian out there doing the kind of work. I mean, I've written um, about various different topics on Hopi history, but there's so much, there's so much that still needs to be, uh, still needs to be written. This episode of the Journal of the Southwest Radio was produced by Patricia Schwartz and edited by Carlos Quintero. The music belongs to the Hopi Cultural Music and Video Project Yontupka. The song, Butterfly Clouds, is performed by Clark Tenakumba, Gary Strautsus, and Matthew Nelson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>